Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. So happy to have you all here. I know for seniors, results are in, fully in. Well, some of you may still be waiting to hear on wait lists, and that's going to be a bit of a, of a, pardon the pun, a waiting game. Uh, and actually, we're going to talk about that next week. We're not talking about that this week, but we are going to talk about wait lists next week. So if this is something you're thinking about, tune in next week. Um, but uh, hopefully you all have some choices that you are really excited about already. And that is very important. Um, today, we're going to be in office hours talking to, and this is probably most appropriate for underclassmen, but tips about the best way to use your in-school resources. So particularly your guidance counselor. We're also going to take you inside the Goucher admissions office. But before we get to that, uh, we're going to talk about the, uh, we're going to take you inside another office, but this time it's going to be the Babson Financial Aid Office. And joining me today to talk through that is um, my colleague, Michelle Clifton, who just happened to work as a financial aid officer at Babson, which is why she's our expert on that today. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we're excited to have you join us. And for our listeners, I don't know if you have heard any of these segments in the past, but basically all of the educators at College Coach are either former admissions officers or former financial aid officers. And so what we try to do with this series is just give you a little peek into how things worked at the offices that we worked at. Um, and, you know, we're not trying to reveal, we're not revealing trade secrets here so much as just giving you a, a better perspective on how decisions are reached on both the admissions and um, the finance front and, and maybe how those systems work. Um, so with that in mind, um, how long did you work at Babson when you were there? Sure. I was there almost 10 years, so quite a long time. Long Long time. So I would imagine in over 10 years, you did more than a few things, but what was your primarily, primary focus in the financial aid office? Sure. Yeah. So we were student financial services. So we were combined student accounts and financial aid. I started out actually in student accounts, did that very briefly. Then I moved over to student loans where I was processing loans. But most of my time there, I was either an assistant director or an associate director. So I was in charge of a caseload of students. I reviewed and processed financial aid applications. I counseled families and processed appeals among some other projects. Got it. So really your work did kind of span the breadth of what uh, Babson is doing in that particular office. Um, mm-hmm. tell, me, tell me a little bit about Babson's financial aid programs. How do those work? Sure. So need-based aid was definitely the priority. So we we awarded a substantial amount of our own institutional need-based aid um, in the form of grants to students. There were a variety of merit scholarships as well, um, but only a limited number were actually offered merit scholarships. I think it was, when I was there, it was about like 20% of the incoming class received some sort of merit, um, but, but need-based aid was definitely the focus. Right. So that's really what you were trying to spend 
your money on was making sure that people who got into Babson could afford to attend Babson, basically. Absolutely. Um, And with that in mind, were you meeting full need? And just for our listeners' sake, I know that there are schools, you know, not all schools are able to meet full need. And so there's something that is called gapping where the school, the college determines that you need $20,000 a year in assistance in order to afford to attend, but they can only give you $10,000. What's Babson's policy when it comes to that kind of thing? Yeah, so we we got closer and closer meaningful need while I was there, um, which was really exciting to be a part of that. I think when I left, we were at about 96%. And from what I hear now, they're meeting 100% need for incoming students. Wow. Yeah, that is huge. Um, any yep, insight into, you know, something, why, and it might be helpful for our listeners to understand, you know, why is that something that colleges don't do automatically? And why is it something you have to work towards? And, um, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's just about the resources of the school. You know, we always wanted to do it, but we just we couldn't. So we had to, you know, gap in slightly um, over the years. And when you said 96%, does that mean that you were meeting full need for 96% of the students you were admitting? Or did it mean that you were kind of getting as close to, you were getting 96% of the need that the students mm. wanted and it was up to them to make up the 4% difference? Yeah, so it was, it depended on the applicant. So, like, students that were receiving merit scholarships were packaged slightly better than the standard applicant. Um, so they were getting, uh, there were some students that were getting their need fully met. Um, there were some that were highly rated by admissions that we were fully meeting their need. Um, but then the typical applicant was slightly um, gapped because we were including the unsubsidized direct loan of $2,000 as part of our calculation. So we would award, you know, any federal aid, then a little bit of work study, and then the full $5,500 direct loan. So since some of that was unsubsidized loan, that's not considered to be meeting full need. So that's where we were not Got it. Uh, doing that. Got it. Not meeting it. So that's interesting. And I, I do think it's a really important point um, for people to understand is there's not a college out there that wouldn't love to meet full need of every applicant who applies. Um, it's not something as a financial aid officer or an admissions officer that you're excited about when you admit a student and then you can't give them the money that they really do need in order to attend your school. You, It's a, it's a bummer basically all around is probably the most of uh, disappointment to the actual student who faces this challenge, but it's really about having the resource to do that. And if you have the resources to do that, it's amazing. And if you don't, it's, it's a difficult thing um, from a yeah. financial. I always said I yeah. couldn't work at a school that didn't, you know, meet at least 90% of need because it just would make me feel too, too guilty. Right. It'd be too terrible. It'd be too painful, right? Too difficult. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, a lot of people that are currently on staff at College Coach, and especially on the admissions side, one of the things that got to be really challenging was constantly having to say no to students, like amazing students, great students whose applications you just loved, and yet you knew there just wasn't going to be room for them in the class, and it got to weigh on you. And I would think from the finance perspective, exactly that. If you are routinely admitting students and packaging them and knowing that that package really just wasn't going to be enough, that, that after a while, that starts to weigh on you a little bit. Yeah. Um, Even when you are meeting full need, that doesn't necessarily make everyone happy because 
what right. we're calculating is someone's family contribution is very rarely what they think they are able to pay. Right. I used to do, I used to travel with, um, when I was at Penn, I traveled with Harvard, Georgetown, and Duke. And I remember the Georgetown rep frequently saying that, you know, it's, it's what the, there is often a difference between what the family thinks is the need and what the yeah. college sees as the need. And um, yeah, there's that too. But let's, let's talk a little bit more about the whole merit scholarship uh, question, because I think that also gets at something that's important for people to understand. So how were the merit scholarships decisions, scholarship decisions made at Babson? Sure. So it was funny. We always got the question of, you know, what, what, how, how, why wasn't I selected or can I be selected? But we weren't really involved in that process at all. Uh, besides, once they were selected, we would package them and include it in their their aid, but um, admissions really oversaw that process. So they, um, there were some scholarships that were just, you know, they would award them, it would come through, and and it would be included in their acceptance packet. Um, others, they um, would go through a separate process where they'd have committees of they included faculty and staff from different areas of the campus, but admissions was still driving that process. Um, and then there were some that they would notify students at the time of acceptance that they were in the running for a scholarship, but they had to come to campus to go through an additional process. Um, so that was Got it. You know, something else they had to do. Uh, but yeah, admissions was really overseeing all of that. So coming to campus um, for interviews and stuff, but did any of those scholarships require students to actually submit a separate application when they were filing their application for Babson? Uh, great question. Most of them didn't, but uh, there was, we did have a full tuition scholarship that required a separate application and, and an essay or a video. Um, and then they would also have to come back to campus um, to for a whole weekend if they were in the running for that. And then we even had a couple small need-based scholarships that required essays um, that we would review and determine um, from there. But for the most part, it was a standard application. Got it. Okay. So, um, and I do think that that points up something important for parents and students to pay attention to when they're um, putting the college list together is what are the merit aid policies at that school, at the schools that are on the list? And if merit aid is going to be an important component, I think the other thing that you probably may have um, guessed but if you haven't, I will spell it out. If Babson has only given merit scholarships, giving merit scholarship money to about 20% of the class, the incoming class, the 20% of the incoming class that's getting those scholarships is not the bottom 20%. It's not the group that's right. barely squeaking in, right? This is the group that looks like the most exciting uh, qualified applicants in that year. So if merit scholarships and merit money is an important consideration for your family, for whatever reason, uh, you are going to have a significantly better shot at those schools where you look a lot better than the average accepted student, where if it's not a safety, it's pretty close. Those are the places where merit money is most likely to come your way. Um, Okay. What about the nuts and bolts of it? When are students typically notified about their financial aid? And is there a specific way? Do they get an email? Are they getting anything in the mail? How does that work? Sure. So on the merit side, they would be notified. So on the the day that the decisions go live, they're able to log into a portal to see that. And if they're getting a scholarship, that's 
included there. Um, but then they also do mail out an acceptance packet as well. So that'll include any scholarship information. If for the need-based aid, if they at least completed the, the CSS profiles, we were a profile school. Not only was the FAFSA required, but also the profile through the college board. Um, as long as they completed that by the deadline or our internal deadline, they would, uh, or we would commit to having at least a tentative financial aid award letter with the acceptance, so online and in the mail. Um, nowadays, since the applications are looking two years back, I have heard that they had more and more applicants submit their um, taxes in their first review, so a lot of families were receiving now receiving final awards a lot earlier than they did when I was there. Um, but basically, as long as they submitted the profile, uh, they could also have submitted other other items of the application that we reviewed as well, but we would include that at the time of acceptance because we didn't want anyone waiting or um, unnecessarily long. Right. And it points up another important thing about hitting deadlines, getting materials in when they're due. Mm -hmm. Um, You're, you know, as a student and a family, if you want to make your decision for all those seniors right now, you can't make your decision until you know how much it's going to cost you. And um, so that's really important. Very quickly, um, just as almost as an aside, how if, if something's missing from your financial aid application, how would you know that? Um, is yep. there any particular way Babson would let you know? Yeah, so we had a, a portal where they could look and see all of the items that were required, and it would say if it was received or not. Um, but then also we would send out notifications by mail or email. If, if someone did something, if they submitted a FAFSA or a profile or taxes, verification worksheet, whatever, if they gave us anything, we'd send out periodic letters to let them know what else was needed. Got it. Okay, so keep your eyes open. Um, And that's the same thing for admissions as well, if you're curious. Okay, last question for you. You get the award, you look at it. um, You mentioned earlier people calling and asking, why didn't I get a merit award? Um, But does Babson negotiate in any way or review a, a financial aid package? Is there any kind of an appeal process? Sure. So for merit, we we never negotiated at all. That that was those decisions did not change. But for need based financial aid, we absolutely accepted appeals. Um, there usually had to be a reason, like job loss, high medical expenses, a parent paying student loans for themselves or older children, or some sort of change in circumstances. Uh, we actually did accept appeals all year round. We had uh, there was a committee of us. We met once per week to make those decisions. Um, and funny enough, we actually solicited mid year as well. So I think usually in October, we would send out an email to all students saying, if you have a change in circumstances, let us know by November and we'll review it for the spring semester. Um, it used to make me crazy that we were asking people to submit appeals, but um, <laughs> we did that. Yeah. And we, we just wanted to make sure we weren't missing anybody if, if someone had a change in circumstances. They could sure. let us know. Or at least maybe reminding them, hey, now is the time. But I hear you sort of like, oh, are we really asking people to <laughs> right. come back? The only reason I, I liked it is because we, did have, we didn't have a formal form for, uh, you know, other times of the year we'd just say, you know, write an email um, to outline your circumstances. But for the mid-year appeal, we actually had a form that we would send them. So it would, it would make it easier for us. And we would actually ask, how much are you looking for? Which I always right. love to see because, you know, sometimes people put, you know, $40,000, others would put 1000 so it gave us some good context. 
Right, exactly, of what was real. And, you know, the more realistic you are about how much you need, the more likely that that might actually happen. Um, Michelle, thank you so much. I thought this was really helpful to better understand how Babson does this. I appreciate you joining us today. Anytime. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh, all right. Up next, we have office hours, and we are talking about how to make uh, good use of the resources available to you in your school. Um, so don't go away. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are uh, about to do office hours, and I think it's really important. This, Hopefully, this podcast for those of you who are listening, is super helpful to you and, and giving you lots of information and tips and suggestions that maybe you wouldn't find anywhere else. But it is also really good to know that you likely have some really good resources right at your fingertips in your own high school. And so I'm very excited to welcome my colleague, um, who happens to be a former University of Southern California admissions officer and a former high school guidance counselor, both in California and Thailand, because why not Thailand? Um, <laughs> Emily Toffelmeyer. Hi, Emily. Hey, Beth. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. And thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm excited because I think you bring the perspective, well, I know you bring the perspective of having worked in a school, so really having a pretty good understanding of some of the resources that all of our students have right there where they attend um, school, where they are going every day. So why don't we start by talking about the counseling office and, you know, kind of the the resources that you see or, you know, you know, what comes to mind immediately when I say, what are some resources students have available to them right away? Mm-hmm. And I'll start with a disclaimer that every counseling office is different. And unfortunately, a lot of that has to do with where you live 
and the economics of the school that you go to. Um, so some of the resources I'm talking about, not everybody might have access to, but most college counseling offices do have a certain set of resources that everybody can access. Um, so I think the best place to start, if you're feeling, if you're a parent who's a little shy about just going into the school and talking to staff members, uh, you can always start online. Um, that's really where the counseling offices store everything these days. So I think the most useful thing to start off with is the handbook, which is uh, something that might have been handed to your student when they started high school, or these days probably was just linked to them or sent to them via email as a PDF. So this is the handbook that's like your Bible to the school, like what courses are available, who's who, what are the policies for taking certain classes, how many APs can you take, that type of information. So if you didn't know this exists, it's probably because your child never shared it with you or gave you a copy of it when they received it. Um, But you can always find that online on the school website. Um, The other links that I would look for on the school website, if you're just starting off, I would see if your school offers Naviance, which is something even a college coach that we use. Um, This is a great online program that allows your school counselors to send information to colleges, but also lets them track application data for their own students and something that parents and students can sign into and look at this data, get an idea of where students are applying to and learn more about colleges as well as do um, like strengths inventories, maybe some assessments of your child to figure out what majors or careers might be a fit for those, for them. Naviance offers that as well. So those are two good places to start if you just want to figure out, okay, what does the school have available? Let me get my feet wet online before I try to make an appointment with the counselor. And actually, this brings up a good point, which is, when do you do this? Is this a senior starting out senior year kind of thing? Is this, oh, I'm now I'm halfway through junior year. Now I should be looking into this. What's your advice on that? Start early. Um, definitely do not wait until senior year to use all of these resources. So even if your student is, is starting freshman year in the fall, like that's a good year to just check in with a counselor and see what's available and what you should be doing. And and some schools, I did work at one high school where there was a mandatory meeting every year for each student, had to meet with their counselor for a credit check, but it was also just to check in, like, how's everything going? Do you need any help? What do you think your future plans are? Um, And that was at a school that had the resources to do that. Not every school has counselors who have loads small enough to accommodate all their students. Um, but we also were completely open to parents. Now, you never want to just, uh, it's a drop-in to the counseling office. It's like you wouldn't <laughs> drop in, I would say, to your dentist. Now, students, yes, they can drop in. If they're having an emotional issue, they're having an emergency, they need to talk to somebody, yes, they can drop by the counseling office. Parents, better to make an appointment ahead of time so the counselor has some time set aside to have a conversation with you. And you can just say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm Beth Eaton's mom. She's a freshman, and I know she wants to go to college, so can I just come in for half an hour and pick your brain and talk about a four-year plan and maybe you can invite Beth along too. And by starting that relationship early on, you're just going to have a better relationship with the counselor over the next few years. And, and you can slowly turn the reins over to your student too. Ninth and 10th grade, you can be the one setting these appointments up and asking the counselor questions. And hopefully by 10th grade, your student will have enough of a relationship with the counselor where you can say, okay, Beth, now it's your turn. You're the one who's going to go talk to the counselor about the issue you're having with your teacher you're the one who's going to talk about college and your classes for next year. Right. Absolutely. And for those of you who are listening and you are in the middle of senior year, certainly it's, I'm sorry, junior year, certainly it's not too late. If it's middle of your senior year, it might be a little too late, but maybe not. <laughs> um, it's, it's not too late. It's just if you are listening and you're, you're, you have younger students or you are a younger student, it is never too soon. So my son is going to start high school next year. And one of the things that I'm going to have on his agenda is, 
he's the kind of kid who will go into the guidance office and set up an appointment um, on his own. And so that's something that I'm going to have on his sort of radar to do. I have a quick question for you, though. One of the things I have often recommended to students and parents is that they sort of avoid the fall for trying to get in to see their guidance counselor, especially in a public school where they're guidance counselors and not just college counselors, but also in a private school, because that's when seniors are really in the thick of everything. Do you have any advice on timing on when you might want to try to make that appointment? Can you do it right at the beginning of the year or would it be better to reach out in January, for example? Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, the first few weeks especially of any school year are completely insane in the counseling office because as parents might know, that's the ad drop period for most schools. So if your child realizes, oh my gosh, AP calculus was a terrible mistake. I have to just take regular instead. That's when they come to the counselor and say, I need a schedule change. So the first few weeks tend to be very crazy and there's new students coming in. And so I would say avoid the first month or so. And you're right, at certain schools, the counselors are really busy writing letters of recommendation and having all these mandatory senior appointments. So that's not the case with every school. Another public school I worked at in Nevada that had a lower college going rate Fall was not necessarily busy for me because I didn't have a lot of letters to write for college. Students were more going the community college, local university Mm -hmm. route, so the fall was actually fine. So I I don't think it hurts for the student to just drop by, talk to the receptionist. There's usually a receptionist in the counseling office and say, you know, hey, I'm a freshman or sophomore, and I know the counselors are probably busy this time of year with seniors. I just want to have like a half-hour meeting with my counselor or my mom wants to come in is this a good time of year for me or is it better if I wait a couple of months? And the receptionist has her pulse on the entire school. She'll be able to tell you if it's a good time or a bad time. Awesome. Great advice. Um, Okay, so then there are some other things that are often going to go on during the school year. What are some things for parents and students to keep their eyes open for in terms of maybe college night and stuff like that? Yeah, what's nice about how easy it is to maintain a website now and to have people in the department making ongoing updates is that you get a lot of real-time information about what's going on in the school. And this sometimes comes even in the form of like an embedded Google Calendar on a school website or something like that. So you can see um, there are special workshops or programs going on, like if there is a college night where... Uh, perhaps a panel of recent alums from the high school come back during winter break to talk about their experiences at different college with parents and students, or maybe there's an open house or um, just an essay writing workshop. Maybe there's free testing practice that's being offered on the school campus. So that stuff is going to all be on the counseling calendar on the website. Um, They usually also list all the college visits that are happening to that campus. So parents, don't go to those. You're not welcome at the college rep visit. (laughs) Those are things that happen during the day, usually in the counseling office or the library or maybe during lunch in the cafeteria where a representative from a college comes and visits the high school. Um, Now, a lot of students are aware these happen, but kids are busy. They're scatterbrained. They don't always know when they're happening or check the calendar. So that might be something you can help with. Take a look at the calendar and maybe just remind your student, like, hey, you know, Pomona's coming to your school to talk. We live in Massachusetts. We're not going to get out to California to see this campus you're interested in, so why don't you sign up for this visit so you can ask a bunch of questions and meet the representative and decide if you like the school. So that's a very easy way for a student to connect with a college, to show their interest, to ask a lot of questions without you having to fly them across the country. Got it. Yeah, I think the college visits, um, you and I used to do those, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't believe I actually ever saw a parent try to crash college visit, but I have heard stories. Don't be a parent. <laughs> that would be a really bad thing. 
You know, one thing that we um, we do talk to students about um, and that I will often go on a website in search of, I don't always find it, which is surprising to me, but is this whole the whole school profile. And I think that can be a valuable resource when you're thinking about your own college list. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about what is that profile? Where are they most likely to be able to find it and how it can be useful to them when they're thinking about um, their own college planning? Sure. The school profile serves a few purposes. Uh, I think the one that I'm the most familiar with is it serves as a guide to the school for college admission officers. Um, I did not know school profiles existed until I was a school counselor. So that tells you how how prevalent the use of that was in my own high school that I attended. I did not know those existed. Um, But I realized really quickly I wasn't alone. And so many conversations we have with college coach families or in our workshops, very few people are aware of this thing even exists. So um, for a lot of schools, you can find it on their website. Sometimes you can just do a search for, you know, uh, Newton High School school profile, and the first thing that pops up is going to be a PDF of that school profile. And other schools simply don't publish it or they just keep it in the counseling office. So if you want it, you need to go to the counseling office and grab a copy. And it's a snapshot of the school. So if I'm an admission officer and I'm reading a school that's new to me or is um, doesn't send many applications to my college. This gives me an idea of what is the school like demographically, so ethnically and socioeconomically. Uh, what are the courses that are offered? How many APs or IB? How many of those courses are typically taken by the average student? What's the GPA distribution? And very often, depending on the school, they'll include a list of the universities that have admitted or matriculated students from that school in the last, say, five years. So it's great for admission officers, but really great for parents, too, just to know what's the landscape of the school. If my student tells me none of his friends take AP classes, is that true? You can look and see, like, no, (laughs) that's not true. A lot of students are taking AP classes. So it gives you a nice context for your student's peers. Yeah, and I think from the perspective of being helpful in your college search, uh, I had this happen this year where the family's view of how the student was doing in relation to his peers and the reality in terms of um, on the school profile, there was a breakdown of GPAs. So it, it gave you the, you know, the top 10% and in this case, actually top 20% have a GPA between a 4.2 and a 4.6 and then so on down the line. So even though the perception was that this student was very strong, one of the best in the class, the reality was when you looked at the school profile that the student was actually in the second um, quintile in the class and not even in that top group. And so that, you know, there were some extenuating circumstances, but it was a little bit of a reality check to understand that, okay, you know, if this is a school that's looking for me to be one of the best, according to this profile, I may not be. Now, often the profile is updated year over year, so the GPA range for the class above you may not be the same as the GPA range for your own class, and you could, in fact, be one of the top kids, but it could also be worse, and you could be not. And I just think it's, it's, um, it's something that the family had never thought to look at, and it reminded me again that that profile can be a really valuable resource and, um, and definitely something to find and look at um, if you have never either heard of it or you've heard of it but you've never seen it. Um, anything else in terms of accessing the counseling office. I think there's there's some other stuff you can get from teachers, and I think we have enough time to talk a little bit about that, um, but I don't want to move on from counseling if we're missing one big thing that, that families could be accessing there. 
Uh, yeah, I think we covered most of the resources, but I, I just want to remind you, you know, building a relationship with this counselor, and I know this isn't possible at every school, at the bigger public schools, where maybe there are shifts in the counseling load and the alphabet moves around a little bit. I know it's not possible to maintain this four-year relationship, but from my experience, I know the students who I met as freshmen or sophomores who, these weren't perfect students. They were coming to me because they were struggling academically. They were having emotional issues. They needed somebody to talk to. But a couple of years later, I was able to write them a very personalized letter of recommendation because I had seen them and I had helped them and I'd seen them persevere and work hard and kind of get over things and mature as a person. So, you know, some students might feel embarrassed about that, but it actually resulted in a better letter as opposed to the senior who just showed up on my doorstep September of senior year and said, hey, I need a letter. And I had met the student maybe twice before because they had never used the counseling office or made an appointment with me or come to any of our programs or workshops. So. Start early with that relationship. And I would give that same advice for the teachers, too. You know, these are also future letter writers, especially if you're a sophomore right now, you're looking ahead to junior year, be really good to your teachers next year. Those are probably going to be the writers of your letters of recommendation. So start off on a good foot, be a hard worker, ask for help when you need it, like establish a real relationship with these people, because chances are at the end of next year, you're going to be asking them to be one of your future letter writers. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is such good advice. And if you are as starting high school and kind of uncomfortable talking to adults, it's something to start working on. Maybe it's you work hard to cultivate a little bit of a relationship with the teacher in your favorite subject area. And um, then that becomes a little bit more comfortable for you. And in sophomore year, you're developing a little bit of a relationship with all of your teachers. And then by the time you're a junior, you are really much better at that than maybe you were. And some of that's going to be just natural growing up and some of it is sometimes something you have to work at. Um, What about some other ways in which teachers can be a resource for students as they're going through high school and ultimately in their college process? Yeah, well, I think teachers can actually help you get more involved extracurricularly, surprisingly, right? They're there to teach you and help you in your classes and give you extra help when you need it, but they also are often connectors to other opportunities. So let's say, for example, in ninth and 10th grade, you really enjoyed your math classes. You have a particular math teacher who you enjoy, and maybe that teacher sponsors the math club. And so you've had some conversations with them during lunch or during meetings. Um, and you're interested in maybe expanding your math resume, and you've heard of, like, the Amy or these different national math competitions that happen, but you don't really know how mm-hmm. to get involved with them. That math teacher probably knows exactly how to connect you to that organization or has another teacher friend who has that set up at their high school so she can set it up at her school too, or maybe you're not the math student, but you love creative writing. Talk to your English teacher about literary competitions or different websites you can submit to, or talk to your art teacher about different showings they have in your community for high school students or art competitions. Um, So if you're a student who is trying to find their way with your activities, your teachers can be a great resource for that. They also are usually club sponsors. So if you decide you want to start an organization at your school, bureaucratically speaking, you need to have a teacher who signs on as your advisor. So if you already have a great relationship with a teacher, they're going to be willing to take on that responsibility and be the the guy who signs the letter or donates the classroom space for your new club. Right. Absolutely. I think these are great suggestions. Um, There are so many resources and, and teachers teach because they really enjoy, for the most part, ideally, because they enjoy students. They enjoy um, interacting with them. There's nothing 
and certainly in my experience, both doing this work and also when I was a student myself, there's nothing a teacher, and by the way, I will say also both of my parents were teachers, so I have that perspective as well. <laughs> but when a student in your class shows a real interest in the subject area that you teach, it's so gratifying, and you will be surprised if they realize how interested you are in maybe doing more or getting involved in some way in that area, how excited they might be about that and, and how eager to help you um, pursue that. So uh, I think all really great suggestions. Uh, Emily, I so appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Have a great day, Beth. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Same to you. And we are going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to have insight into the Goucher Admissions Office. And we're also going to do uh, one of our school interludes, tell you a little bit more about the University of Southern California in honor of Emily joining us today. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Okay. Hey, everybody. We have um, a great third segment for you, taking you inside the admissions officer at Goucher College. But before we do that, I did want to um, do a school spotlight. And as I mentioned before the break, in honor of my colleague, Emily Toffelmeyer, who worked as an admissions officer at the University of Southern California, I thought I'd talk about them today. So... Um, Although the University of Southern California's programs in business communications and international relations are particularly well regarded, um, you might be surprised to know that USC provides first-year students with over 175 majors to consider. So whether you're interested in animation and digital arts, astronautical engineering, or classical guitar performance, uh, it's likely that you could pursue your passion here. 
Students who are enrolled in the College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences, which is also known as Dorn's Life, can apply to participate in the thematic option curriculum, which offers 200 freshmen the chance to complete their general education requirements by enrolling in honors-level interdisciplinary courses and intensive writing tutorials. So cool stuff um, for students who are um, interested in applying for that. There are also a lot of research options at USC, and that is thanks in part to the nearly $700 million in outside funding that the university receives annually. So in addition to contacting professors directly and trying to obtain research opportunities in that way, students can also turn to one of the many research centers on campus, such as the Brain and Creativity Institute, the Game Innovation Lab, or the Institute for Health Promotion and Disease Prevention Research um, to find these undergraduate research opportunities. And then uh, just as a final note, USC has a very vibrant and dynamic population of 18,000 undergrads, um, heavily drawn from California, but also lots of students from Texas, New York, and Illinois. Illinois, well represented, and of, and of course they have some really fun alums, including Reggie Bush, football player, George Lucas, who you may have heard of, Star Wars, you know, small little movie franchise, uh, Macy Gray. I don't know if that's getting back there. If everyone knows who Macy Gray is, but she's a singer, popular in the '90s, and Will Ferrell, uh, our favorite Saturday Night Live alum. So. Uh, that's University of Southern California. But on to Goucher, which is fully across the country. And joining me to take us inside of the Goucher admissions office is my colleague and former Goucher admissions officer and also a former high school guidance counselor, uh, Lisa Albro. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Beth. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. And thanks so much for joining us. And um, Goucher is an interesting little school, and I would love to share more about it with our listeners. And I think um, probably very quickly, tell us a little bit about Goucher, how big it is, where it is, that stuff. Mm-hmm. Sure. So Goucher now is a close to 1,500 undergrads. Uh, when I left, it was more like 1,200, so it's grown. Uh, it's liberal arts. Uh, years and years and years ago, it had been the sister school to Johns Hopkins because it had been an all-female institution, but went co-ed in 1986, so it's fully co-ed. Uh, there's a, a good, strong male population on campus, and you, you really only maybe see remnants every once in a while that it had been a women's college, but it's, it's a good, strong, liberal arts, co-ed institution, uh, beautiful campus, sizable, over 280 acres. Of campus. Uh, some of the popular programs there, just real quick, uh, that, well, it's very well known for its dance major and dance programs, dance education. Uh, there's a wonderful equestrian program for people who like to ride, and I've actually worked with several students who are looking at Goucher specifically because they're riders and they want to be in the equestrian program. Uh, but other academic majors that are big, psychology is always the biggest major. Business and management is actually kind of hovering around number two, number three for most years, and English and economics, communications, these are always big majors there, too, Uh, but biology is a big one as well, so you you kind of see uh, a nice uh, distribution there of majors. Um, Quickly, too, Goucher has a 3 plus 2 engineering program with Johns Hopkins, so students can major in a math, science, or computer science area at Goucher, uh, spend three years doing that, and if they have a B or better, they can go then to Hopkins and specialize in one of six areas of engineering, and that's a per- pretty uh, pretty strong way if you're not entirely sure when you start that you want to go into engineering, but the size down the road that you do, that's, that's a great way to go that way. 
Good things to think yep. about. Nice. I mean, that's interesting. And actually, I did not realize the connection between Goucher and Johns Hopkins. And we'll file that in the you learn something new every day. And I swear I learn something new every time I host the show. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how the admissions process works at Goucher. How many people are reading each file? Do they do mm-hmm. committee? How does that stuff work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So Goucher has a single reader system. So the regional representative for an area, for example, New Jersey was my primary territory. I had several other states and areas. Uh, I would have been the first reader of an application from any of those areas, or the reader, I should say. It's, it was not typical that a file had to be read twice. Uh, our director would kind of set the threshold for us each year and say this is kind of the, the GPA and the SAT or ACT score that we're okay with. Uh, as long as students have those on target or above and there are no red flags and you're feeling like this is a student who can thrive here given, you know, their engagement and some of the other pieces of their of their application, uh, you can go ahead and put them through to me as an admit and we don't need to talk about them in committee and I will look that over and, and make the determination. So the director reads every file after it's read by the primary reader. Uh, so I guess you could say it's a, it's a second read. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you make sure it's a, it's a your math, so to speak, right? Um, yes. But if, let's say if we had a student that, that kind of met all those number sort of uh, requirements that were set each year, uh, and, but there was something that was making us a little uneasy or we thought, well, maybe this should be discussed, that would be a reason to take the student to committee and discuss among the larger groups of admissions officers, and that's when kind of the, the back and forth happens and the, well, what about this and what about that? Uh, that's when uh, different interests uh, that the college might have in students are discussed. For example, uh, is this an athlete uh, that maybe is a top choice of a coach, or is this a student uh, that has an alumni connection, a legacy connection, or, or a separate faculty connection that we need to discuss in that conversation? Uh, or is it an underrepresented population, or is there a geographic uh, grab for us there for, you know, from a region that we don't typically see a lot of students coming from? Got so those, those would all be discussed in committee. Okay. Um, and I think that's really helpful. And for our listeners who've heard these segments before, hopefully what they're realizing is that this is done differently at, a, uh, at different schools. And so you can't always assume that, oh, well, when it goes, when you send your application and then suddenly five people are going to read it and then they all get together and the whole you know, admissions office decides on a decision um, that is, might be the case at one school, but certainly not at all. Um, exactly. So, all right, so from that perspective, when you were reading files and um, thinking about whether or not this student, certainly there were some where you just saw they had the grades, they had the test scores, and um, they had put together a solid application, and that wasn't really that much to think about. But for the ones that did require more that you might advocate for, what were some of the things that you would see that, that indicated a student would be a good match for Goucher? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I would just see something in an application that would make me feel, okay, this, this could be a good place for this student, or this is a place the student can be successful, this particular student. Um, maybe I sense a, a good amount of curiosity coming through in, in the personality qualities of, of the students, uh, what I was reading in the essay, what I was hearing in the teacher or counselor recommendations might have been telling me some things that made me feel 
yes, I can see the student here and, and would help me to advocate. Uh, sometimes I would have met a student, maybe when I was traveling to his or her high school or where they came on campus or interviewed them or, you know, so many ways to engage with students. Uh, and, and maybe they made an impression on me and I really remembered them or they reached out to me with a question and we maybe engaged in a little bit of a back and forth over email or over the phone and, and I started to get a sense of, something more about the student beyond just what the application would, would represent, and, and that would give me a little bit more ammo, so to speak, where I could kind of, you know, really say, look, I, I think the student can do it here. I would love to see him or her come to campus. Uh, so curiosity, right. engagement, when I would see a student who was, you know, willing to take good risks, uh, try something new, maybe start something that hadn't already existed, uh, you know, I didn't want a student who was just a student and was going to just kind of come and, and hunker down in the dorm room and not be part of the campus community because at a small school, you always have to think about the community and who's going to fit into the community and what, what kind of students will kind of complement each other in a small community, right? Right, right. So, so we would think about that a lot. Right, you can't, there isn't room to hide at a place like Goucher where you have 1,500 undergrads. You need a group of kids who are going to come and, and really engage, right? That's something that is got to be important or else you have a, a, a group of, a small group of people who are just kind of coming, taking classes and then going off and doing their own things. And that's not really going to be useful on, on a campus as small as Goucher's. Exactly, and that's not that's not the Goucher style. You know, the Goucher is a place where professors are involved in the life of the campus beyond just the classroom. Like you'll see professors in the cafe, you'll see students and professors, you know, kind of meeting and chatting in all different places outside of class, or or engaging in maybe the, the professors will come and watch some sporting events or something. You know, you, you see faculty and staff all over campus, not just in their offices or in their classrooms. And we want students there. We wanted students there who would be part of that community and who would engage with not just each other, mm-hmm. but with staff and faculty as well. Right, exactly. And actually, that, that leads me to um, something that I hadn't thought or, or about, which is, is there any faculty involvement at all in the admissions process? Um, would it be good for a student to try to get to the Goucher campus and go to a class or even meet with a professor in an, in an area of interest for the student? And did, did professors ever maybe write a note on behalf of a prospective applicant who they'd met? I'm just curious if that was ever a factor for you. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I can't say that it was a standard mode of operation for everybody, but I definitely would have professors every once in a while who would reach out to me via, you know, via phone or email or pop into my office and say, hey, I just had a great conversation with a kid I would love to see in my classroom in the fall. And, and what an endorsement that is. Uh, so yeah. Sometimes, yeah, we would have students who would ask, uh, you know, could I meet with a professor? Uh, I always tell my students now, for any school they're looking at, if they're interested in learning more about a major or an area of study that they can't find the information online, uh, you know, to, to reach out to their admissions, connection and ask, is there a professor that you would recommend I speak to? You know, if you look on the website, you just see all these names of professors. You don't know who's likely like, to be responsive to you or, or who's got the time or who's on sabbatical that semester or what have you. Uh, but the admissions office generally will know who to guide you to. And so I would very often field those calls from students, sometimes from parents for their kids. I would always prefer the student make those calls or send those yes. emails, right? And, and say, you know, who can I talk to in this department or that department if I have some extra questions? And I 
send an email that professor's way or give them a call and, and connect them. Uh, sometimes it wouldn't be me, but maybe the receptionist would do it or somebody else in the office. But the next thing I would know, I would get some endorsement from a professor about a student. Um, there is one place where now faculty is more formally involved in the admissions process than they were when I was there, and that is uh, in Goucher now has a video app application um, option. So students can choose to submit a formal application through the Common App, or they can do a video app. And so the review of that is done by an admissions officer and a faculty member. That's one little difference. I can't say that every application is looked at by a faculty member, but the video apps are. That's an, an actually really good point. Two things before we have to wrap here. The first is, um, do you have, I know that you've recently been in touch with some colleagues who are still in the Goucher campus, and I'm curious if that introduction of the video application has been successful and, and if they had any tips or, you know, suggestions for students if they should do the video app versus doing a regular application. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, and, and I'd say it has been successful. I, I don't know that droves of kids are using that application mode, and I don't know the numbers exactly, how many, but they find that it's a, it's a, a good way for students who maybe are a little bit non-traditional in the way they approach things or who may be really interesting in person. You know, they're, they're, they're really three-dimensional when you see them. Uh, they're gregarious. Uh, they're able to talk about something with enthusiasm and, and, and verve. Um, those kinds of things really stand out in a video. And there are really no set guidelines as to what they can do in the video. They're just given, a, say, you know, two to three minutes or something. They're, they're asked to talk about something. Um, they don't need to have production quality or value. It can be done on an iPhone or, or anything like that. It's, it's okay. Uh, they mainly are just looking for what's the message this student is trying to get across to us. Uh, and they found that it's been pretty successful in engaging the right students. Uh, cool. This might appeal to. Mm -hmm. yeah, All right. Yeah. Very, um, one more thing very, quickly to consider, yes. and I didn't mention, Goucher is mm -hmm. test optional. Ah, yes, that's important. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then one other very quick question for you, and that is, how important was demonstrated interest? So was it important if a student visited or <laughs> did, you know, if you were at the high school, showed up for that visit um, or got on your mailing list and basically showed you through a variety of ways that they were truly interested? How important was that? Well, especially because it's a small place. Uh, we wanted to know that students had been on our radar screen in some way before becoming an applicant, and that didn't have to necessarily be a visit. We certainly understood that uh, if students lived far away or, or you know, financially it could be restrictive for them to travel to us, even if they were fairly close. Uh, it didn't have to be a visit. Certainly a visit was great. Uh, but if they came to a college fair and filled out a form, if they met a representative at their school, if they inquired online and, and put themselves on our mailing list or, or listed us as a school to receive SAT scores or, or PSAT scores even, uh, you know, any way of, of contacting us was tracked. Everything had a numerical code. So we would look that over, sure. Uh, especially, I'll tell you, if we're looking at a student who is very strong and we thought, okay, we might be a safety for this student, we wanted to get the sense that they didn't just kind of throw us on their list at the last minute. Oh, gee, it's a safety, so maybe, you know, I should just add that in. We wanted to know that we were sort of somewhere in their in their purview. Uh, sure. Before, uh, you know, we, we went ahead and said yes to them because we wanted to know they might be more likely to enroll. 
Sure, absolutely. Lisa, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks to all my guests today. Next week, Ian is hosting. He's going to be talking about how to get started on a college list and especially taking costs into account when you're creating that list. And in office hours, we are going to be talking all about wait lists. Um, We have lots of great free ways to interact with College Coach, including our blog. That's probably the most important. I would check that out. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.